0: Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the Weight Loss Champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for giving the show a download, a listen, a view. Perhaps you're on YouTube. Thanks for checking us out. Wherever it is that you are, we appreciate that you are here. I'm going to start the show today with a question. Have you ever gone to the doctor and been given this ambiguous prescription for diet and exercise. The exercise part, that's really simple, right? So you're probably being told walk at least a half an hour a day, maybe go to the gym, lift some weights, whatever the case may be. You tend to get pretty specific instructions when it comes to exercise. But for the diet part, it's not that simple. Oftentimes, we're being told that just eat a little less and don't eat the whole sandwich, only eat half of it. Maybe we're told to cut back on the soda and skip the cake. But why aren't we hearing about how the lunch meat on that sandwich increases your risk of heart disease and cancer? Why aren't we being told that the shortening and the fat found in cake is doing the same thing? And oh, by the way, not to mention, it's also raising your blood pressure. Well, on today's show, we're going to explain why those conversations with your doctor are not happening as I'm joined by Dr. Neil Barnard. This is a segment that we actually did as a Lunch and Learn live on Facebook. We streamed it live, we took some questions, and we really got to the bottom of this mystery. Why won't my doctor talk about my diet? The answer, kind of simple and kind of complex. But as you hear, it starts way back in medical school and maybe even before that. The funny thing is, is that most doctors actually want to talk to you about nutrition, but they just don't know how. They don't have that information. It's never been anything that they've talked about before, but they want to learn. They want to have those conversations. So how do we get started? How do we get those doctors on the right path? How can we get those doctors to explain to patients about the importance of fiber? How can we get them to understand that you can get vitamin C from a lot more places than just a pill or a glass of orange juice? And for the love of Pearl, how can we get them to understand that you can get more than enough protein on a vegan diet? Now, that's not to take a shot at doctors. We love doctors around here, all right? We are the Physicians Committee, after all. But this conversation is one that will help us all understand where those gaps are, why they're happening, and then more importantly, how to bridge them and how taking the time to learn about nutrition can save hundreds of thousands of lives and bring down the astronomical cost of health care. Drugs aren't getting any cheaper, you know, and really, who among us doesn't want more money in the bank? better yet. Who doesn't want a better quality of life? That, my friend, is something that we should all be striving for. So you ready? Let's hop into the exam room and try to answer the question, why won't my doctor talk about my diet? We are doing a very special live episode here, a lunch and learn, as it were, with Dr. Neil Barnard. Thanks for taking the time, my friend.
1: Thank you, Chuck. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Glad to have you with us.
0: I want to tell you a story, and this is something very funny. I went to my doctor about, oh, a year, year and a half ago, and uh, I hadn't seen him in a very long time. He asked how I was doing, and I said, well, I'm, man, I'm doing great. I've never felt better. You know, I, I, I adopted a plant-based diet, and he stopped me right then and there, like dead in my tracks. First question he asks me. Where do you get your protein? (laughs) And mind Uh, you, this is a bariatric doctor. So I was kind of taken aback by that. But then having conversations with you and the other staff up at the Barnard Medical Center, this is kind of a common thing where a lot of times doctors really aren't as hip to the nutrition game as you would
1: think that they, they would be. I'm sorry to say that what you're saying, what you've said here is all too common. That doctors really don't know much about nutrition than anybody else. And you think, wait a minute, you're a doctor you're treating diabetes or obesity or heart disease or cancer, the food aspects of that are critical. Doctors should be trained. There's two issues. The first is that medical schools don't really focus on it very much. You'd think they would. They don't. The second issue is that after a doctor is out of medical school, there isn't any uh, real effort for them to stay in touch with the nutritional things that might be coming along, coming down the pike. And both are really important and both are big problem areas. How,
0: how do you think that that really is impacting the state of health in this country? Because we, we start to see that obesity, start to see, we've seen obesity rates continue to rise. The, uh, the rates of other uh, correlated diseases continue to rise. In your opinion, is that kind of a byproduct, a little bit of this lack of education?
1: Well, can you imagine? What what if doctors never counseled a patient to stop smoking? Would that affect things? Uh, The patient says, you know, I smoke about two packs a day, and the doctor never says a word. Um, Or the patient says, yeah, I'm really tossing back, you know, a couple of six packs a night, um, and the doctor never says a word. It would have a huge effect. Mm. Um, And the converse is true, too, that when the doctor intervenes, it has a big effect. So what about food? Um, Just like tobacco and just like alcohol, food has a huge um, impact, except that not everybody's smoking and not everybody has an alcohol problem, but every single person eats. Absolutely. And if the doctor doesn't jump in, f- first of all, it's bad for the patient because time can go by and the doctor neglects it and neglects it. The other thing is it's bad for doctors. And here's what I mean. Here at the Barnard Medical Center, patients come in. They might have had diabetes for 15 or 20 years and no doctor ever talked with them about how about a low-fat plant-based diet? Let's see what that would would do for you. And so they've never had that information. By the time they come to us, they've had kidney damage, they've had advancing atherosclerosis, their eyes might be affected, they might have peripheral neuropathy. These things should have been taken care of long ago by a knowledgeable physician. And I'll tell
0: you, I'll, I'll take that a step further and take it right back to the patient. I have a friend who I was Telling about you know the benefits of plant based dieting and and he does have diabetes he's had it for a number of years and right. I asked him would you be interested in doing this he's like I would but I'm scared to do it because I'm diabetic and my doctor isn't sure about it
1: yes uh, I'll tell you it's it's a serious serious issue I was talking with a, a person not too long ago who had also has diabetes um, younger fairly young person and uh, the person's doctor said gee uh, A vegan diet, would that be safe for you? Uh, And you think, what what were they talking about? Well, you're eating beans and fruits, and the the carbohydrates might be dangerous and whatever. And so the doctor was not supportive. And the patient went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. And the person improved dramatically and was saying, why didn't – not only why didn't my – outside doctor tell me about it but why would the doctor kind of throw up a red flag um so i think the answer to this is not really to condemn doctors but it's to require them to know something about nutrition in the same way as if you had a doctor who said i just don't know anything about statin drugs i don't know what they do um i don't know how they work and i mean that would just be ridiculous right um why is it that that's permissible with food
0: that's a, that's a fine question. Now, uh, let's go back to medical school. Let's, let's take it back a little bit. Right. When you say little to no time on nutrition is spent in med school, how little time are we actually talking about?
1: Well, and also, what, what are we even talking about with regard to nutrition? Exactly. When, I, when, when I was in medical school, uh, we did have what you might call nutrition lectures. They were part of biochemistry. And they didn't, what they would say is here's the chemical structure of vitamin C. And uh, British sailors got scurvy if they weren't getting vitamin C. And so limes gave them vitamin C and cured that. What they don't talk about is anything that actually relates to your practice. I can <laughs> tell you, no, we would never see a patient with scurvy coming in here. So, th- so, so the medical scu- student can cough up the word scurvy for a board exam. Right. But they don't know anything more than that. So, but they can draw out the, you know the, the structure of the vitamins. Then the patient comes in and says, well, I've got type 2 diabetes or I have... Uh, cancer in my family. Uh, I'm concerned about Alzheimer's disease. How could nutrition affect my risk? There's huge research on all of these things. And if the doctor isn't keeping up, they're, they're really just fumbling with it. So back to your question about medical schools. Um, they might have something that sort of passes for nutrition, but it's not practical. And many of them have really basically nothing. Um, it's starting to change. There are some places where they have what they call a culinary medicine program, where they learn a few things. Um, but we need to go much, much further. What is the general feeling? I I think that there was a
0: study done not too long ago uh, where a number of physicians were asked, should they be talking more with their patients about nutrition? Mm -hmm. And I believe that the overwhelming majority of those physicians said, absolutely, we should be doing that. But then they reached that impasse of we don't know how.
1: Yes, that's right. And there was a similar survey of of senior residents, uh, medical residents. And they said, we really want more training. They'd like to have training. So it's not that they're really opposed to it. Um, They're just sort of not getting it. Um, But again, there's really two things, which should be part of medical school, but that's not enough. Because let's say you graduated from medical school in 1995. Well you know our research on vegan diets for diabetes was published a lot, of, a, <laughs> right. lot a lot more recently right. than that right. so uh, and all the work on and alzheimers was published a lot more recently than that so doctors have to keep up to date i i would i would think so uh and i think that this is actually kind of a
0: interesting time to also mention that one of the things that we're doing here at the physicians committee to help doctors keep up to date is we have this enormous powerful fun conference every year here in Washington, D.C., the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, where we are going to have a ton of speakers, ton of doctors, physicians, dietitians who are all very familiar of the link between diet and disease. They're going to come in. They're going to talk. They're going to educate people. I believe that is July 26th Twi- and 27th? 26th
1: and 27th, and we're going to precede it with a special session on July 25th, um, which is sort of the nutrition basics for a doctor who says, I'm really new to this. Would you walk me through Mm-hmm. Um, heart disease, um, cancer, and so forth. We'll have special sessions on those those days, and it is going to be life-changing. You should have seen the, well, you did see the conference last year. Yep. It was wonderful. We had a thousand or more, more than a thousand, doctors there, some medical students, dieticians, and so forth. And this year is going to be our best ever. Uh, Friday night we are honoring Dr. Dean Ornish, who's going to be with us. He's going to speak about his breakthrough work. Um, as you know, he showed that you can reverse heart disease and uh, on the heels of that work, he showed that foods can affect prostate cancer, prognosis. He's been instrumental in really bringing the government in to support this kind of thing, so we're going to be honoring him. Um, Eric Adams, the borough president of, yes. of um, Brooklyn, is going to be with us because he has an amazing personal story of how he got a, a diabetes diagnosis and ended up reversing it, and the most amazing thing ever. But we're actually going to start the the, the main conference off on Friday morning, Paul Ridker will be there, who is a real leader uh, in the world of cardiovascular disease. And he'll say, cholesterol is important, but it's not all there is to it. What's the role of inflammation? How does inflammation work with cholesterol to cause those arteries to get clogged? And he's he's got really a riveting presentation, and right on the heels of that. We have Jerry Shulman and Kit Peterson, who are talking about the new world of diabetes and all the work that really, uh, I think, sets a, a great foundation for the kind of research that we have been doing about getting the animal products out of the diet, keeping the oils low. Um, we have special panels for doctors in practice. How do I integrate this into my own practice?" And it's it's people leave. They're just their eyes are opened, and they have a blast. Not to mention the fact that the food is all <laughs> all healthy and totally. Oh drink-based.
0: yeah, yeah. That that is definitely the the, the plus. There, I, I've been to the past two conferences, and have never walked away hungry, never walked yeah. away disappointed. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, I should also mention that if you are unfamiliar with Eric Adams' story, uh, I really recommend that you go back and subscribe to the Exam Room podcast. I had an opportunity to interview him a few months back and talk about a powerful story you know this this guy went from that ultra-macho world of being a policeman, adopts, I mean, has all sorts of health issues, adopts the plant-based diet, gets his life turned around. Now he's the, as you said, the Brooklyn Borough President, and so for all of his thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand constituents there in Brooklyn, he's really bringing forward his knowledge, what he's learned about that plant-based diet.
1: I want to say his impact is, has been even bigger than that. He's affecting the, all of New York City, and and that, in turn, is sending ripples through all of New York State and everywhere else. Whenever he's he delights people on fire because um, he, he, he was surprised to ever get this diagnosis of diabetes and it was in poor control and he unlike this idea well people won't really change he grabbed a hold of a healthy diet he plugged it in he made it work and now he wants everybody to know about this life-saving information so he'll be with us and we'll have a huge crowd of other people um, there with lots of lots to say and I hope that uh, people will join us I mentioned doctors, but dietitians can come. Mm-hmm. Nurses will come. We have lots of nurses and nurse practitioners. And uh, everybody gets credits, which, hey. which they need. If <laughs> you need your continuing medical education credits or continuing education credits, you get those. Um, so it's... It's. I have to say for me I've just been so thrilled to see This huge community that has that grown up around it.
0: it It really is fantastic And that place was overflowing Last year, mm-hmm. I don't know how we're going to fit Even more people into yeah. the conference this year um, So that that certainly does bode well For what it is that we're talking about Here today in terms of Doctors seeking out this information And I think that we should talk About numbers here Because one of the things that I wanted to talk To you about is the fact that Poor diet quality is now the leading cause of death and disability in the United States, the leading cause. And so if we can change what's on our plate, rethink the way that we approach food and nutrition, you would also have to think with the skyrocketing cost of health care that we could bring that down as well.
1: In a couple of ways, absolutely. The the first thing is uh, direct things. Uh, The foods that you eat will affect your blood pressure directly. Um, So if you improve your diet, your blood pressure will come down. That might reduce your risk of stroke or kidney problems. And it also means you don't need so much lisinopril anymore. Maybe maybe, (laughs) maybe you'll get off it. But there's a huge indirect effect as well. Um, The diet that you eat might affect, um, let's say, your weight. Mm -hmm. In turn, your weight affects your blood pressure. It also affects your cancer risk long term. And uh, it it affects your joints. So all of these other secondary issues come in. Um, Your diabetes is in bad control. Well, that in turn will affect your eye health, your kidney health. So when people change their diet, it affects some things directly, but it has a huge number of, of other effects, too, all of which play into this.
0: You've done a lot in terms of working with people in reversing diabetes. You have your, your program out there, which is available in a book form, as well as the companion cookbook. I, I'm curious, the people that you've worked with, the, the patients that you've seen, can you give me some examples of people who have walked in and then, over time, have actually seen a full reversal of those diabetes and, and just how their life, their quality of life improves?
1: Well, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, in fact we were just talking about Mark Ramirez did you have mark on this program mark yeah that's another um, that's another interview you have i, to, I was, was going to I was gonna say i was going to say i was i was just remembering mark's uh, experience where he was um a football player Continued to eat like a football player even after his career ended, and he ended up with diabetes and many other problems and uh, completely reversed it. So anyway, Mark and Eric are are, are wonderful examples of this, but there are many, many others. One of the ones that really touched me the most was a man who contacted me because he had gone to see his doctor, and the doctor drew some blood tests, and his diabetes was not in good control. Mm. And so he went back home, thought, what can I do? And he picked up my book. Uh, on reversing diabetes, put it to work, uh, threw out all the animal products, kept the, the oils really low. So he was eating a vegan diet, went back to see the doctor, gets his blood testing done and everything, goes back home. day or so later, urgent call from the doctor's office. We found some things on your blood test that we need explained. Will you come here right away? And he thinks, oh, my God, what did they find? What have I got? You know. And so he's driving there all nervous, and he gets there, and the doctor ushers him in, sits him down, and he says, your blood tests, what have you been doing? And he said, well... Nothing. I mean, I, I went vegan and whatever, and the doctor says, "Darn, your, 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 your blood cholesterol is, or your blood glucose is better than mine, and I don't even have diabetes. Oh, wow. In other words, the doctor was floored that he had reversed his diabetes. It showed up on his blood test that he was effectively cured, and the doctor couldn't figure out how this could possibly happen and needed an explanation. So anyway, um, it, it has had amazing effects for patients but also amazing effects for their caregivers and the dietitians and and others who who really felt it wasn't possible to reverse diabetes.
0: You know and and I want to I want to approach this from a a different point as well because I've also heard of kind of the converse happening. The patient adopts the plant-based diet. Their numbers improve significantly. The doctor comes back and is like, well, we need to put more meat in your diet so you can continue taking your medication. Have you heard of instances like that?
1: Well, actually, as a matter of fact, until fairly recently, diets were sort of chosen to cater to the medication. Uh, Okay, you're taking 20 units of insulin a day. Make sure you have enough. You know, and it's usually have enough sugar or have enough carbohydrate to make sure that you don't become hypoglycemic. Um, but, yeah, my my feeling is that we shouldn't be catering to our medication. We should be trying to minimize our medication and get off the darn things if we can. Mm,
0: I, I would agree with that. And And here's the thing. So just to kind of quantify how much we could save, estimated in, in health care costs. Uh, get this, chronic disease related to diet and lifestyle account for 7 in 10 deaths in this country right now. That's just an extraordinary number. And 86% of the annual $3.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T, $3.5 trillion annual health care expenses. That is significant.
1: Well, it's huge. And and to bring it down to a personal level, uh, one single person who's got diabetes Their medical uh, costs average more than $16,000 a year. And you go to the drugstore, and you soon find out why. They have an insulin pen. Uh, It might be a long-acting insulin or or short-acting insulin. And they go up to the counter and say, this is really expensive. I'm going through a lot of these. Can I get generic next time? And the pharmacist looks them in the eye and says, there's no generic insulin. What are you talking about? Now, doesn't that sound crazy? After all of these years that insulin has been available, there's no generic insulin. You're going to pay for it or you're going to die. Wow. And so the patient says, I'll pay for it. Um, And then their insurance costs go up and all all the associated costs go up. Now, we can try to contain those costs. We should. Sure. But we need to do more than that. We need to find a way to make the diabetes go away or improve it so that the person doesn't need that medication anymore. And that's part of what we're going to talk about at ICNM, Uh, the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. Forgive me for using the abbreviation. um, (laughs) Is we're going to talk about the real cause of diabetes, and that's the accumulating lipid uh, particles in the muscle and liver cells and how you can change your diet to get those out and so how the diabetes can improve. And when I have to say, here's the other thing, Chuck. When doctors put that to work, not only is the patient's life changed, the doctor's life has changed, too, because so many doctors call me up. They say, I'm working in a factory here. Just one patient after another. Here's your problem. Here's your prescription. Here's your problem. Here's your prescription. And f- when they suddenly realize, wait a minute, foods can make these things go away. And the patient says, this is finally a prescription I like right and and they 're they 're partnering with the doctor they 're working together and it 's life saving for the patient but it 's life changing for the doctors they They suddenly love their medical practice again, and all the burnout stuff that they were having just melts away
0: you know and there 's going to be a lot of other fun topics at the conference as well again july twenty sixth and twenty seventh the Grand Hyatt Hotel and beautiful. Washington, D.C. Uh, You can get your tickets pcrm.org slash ICNM. There's that acronym again. Uh, But so many fun speakers. Uh, One of the topics is going to be from a local doctor at GW, uh, Dr. Lee Frame. Nutrition and the gut microbiome. Where are we now and where are we going? I got to tell you, I recently had her on the show Mm -hmm. and this was honestly one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done and how she was able to you know, just kind of make this uh, connection between the way that DNA research has really expanded and how that's helped us understand gut microbiome and what all of that means in terms of our own health and how that's really just advanced so much in recent years and where it's going in the next 5, 10, 15 years, how much more we're uh, going to learn.
1: Lee Frame is a ball of fire, and, and I'm so glad that she's going to be with us because what, what we have learned is that, that there is more DNA Uh, more different types of DNA in your digestive tract than there is in all the rest of your body. And it comes from all different species. But think about this. The foods that you eat will select out different organisms to thrive and other ones to go away or to be minimized. So can you imagine that you're picking a breakfast that is sort of... uh, a uh, healthy fertilizer for all the good, the good bacteria, um, or it's uh, going to discourage the bad bacteria, and so you're changing the bacterial populations. In turn, you're changing the DNA actions in your digestive tract that turns on or turns off the things that might then get into your circulation. Wow. See, that's, that's it's, it's as quick as your next meal I'm But most people you. have no idea about these things
0: um, it, And it, it, it really is fascinating This was such a fun episode Because I paired her interview uh, With our own Dr. Hana Kaliova And we talked right. about a study uh, on satiety As a matter of fact She, she took uh, a veggie burger And gave that to uh, 16 gentlemen And then she also had uh, on another day The 16 gentlemen eat a traditional hamburger And so she Was <laughs> seeing which one will keep you full longer we want to take a stab on on which burger won.
1: I think I know the result. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Hands down, across the board, it was the veggie burger. Right. And so she kind of tied that in a little bit with the gut microbiome and satiety, and right. it's just fascinating. Well,
1: Dr. Kalyova is also going to be at the yep. International Conference yeah. on Nutrition and Medicine because um, we actually do test the gut microbiome of our research participants, and it has been a fascinating thing to see what happens and what happens very very quickly. So Dr. Kalyova will be there. We're going to present some findings and. In- I think people enjoy them.
0: Ah, and uh, if you're not familiar yet with the Exam Room podcast, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Shoutcast, wherever podcasts are available. That is where you can find the Exam Room by the Physicians Committee. New episodes every Wednesday, and bonus episodes every now and again on uh, Facebook as well. Uh, listener questions before we wrap up and, okay. and let people get on with their day. I'm in. Uh, a lot of people actually asked this question, and they said, what do you think about doctors referring their patients? to registered dietitians?
1: I think it's a good idea. I think in, in, in many cases, I think it's really essential because the doctor doesn't have necessarily a whole lot of time. The dietitian is the person, that's their job, is to help the patient design menus and work with the family and really get a person on a better track. Now, it's important for dietitians to understand the latest science, too. Many of them are terrific, including all the ones we have here. There are others where they haven't learned as much as they need to about plant-based diets, so I'd encourage them to do that.
0: A lot of people also asking this, Uh, I can tell you from experience, I have family members on Medicare, Medicaid, older, uh, and they have just a host of health issues, but Every time they go to see the doctor, that visit is capped at fifteen minutes, and as soon as that fifteenth minute ticks away, that doctor is out the door. So the question was then raised: What if the doctor only has a few minutes with the patients and doesn't have the time? How then do they have that conversation? Uh,
1: well, I I think one of the things to do is to take your clock and throw it out the window. That'll um, I mean there, there are time, <laughs> there, there are times where the patient has an issue that that might take you 16 minutes or 25 minutes or an hour and a half. And you ha- it's your professional job to, to help that person. Um, I mean, let me go further. I mean, there was a time when doctors would go to your house, and we called it a house call. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing unusual about that. Uh, there were times where you would talk to the patient on the telephone. And nowadays, there's so, much, so many barriers between doctors and patients, I think those need to be erased. Um, however, I, sh- I will also say this, that I don't think the doctor necessarily has to do all the nutritional counseling. I think they need to take just a couple of minutes and say, here's why nutrition matters. Here's the kind of diet that I'd suggest for you. But the heavy lifting is really going to be done by the registered dietitian and by the classes. So the patient gets really detailed information and ongoing support.
0: So we've talked about uh, the ICNM, the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, coming up in July. But this doctor uh, also asks, as an MD myself, where and how can I get training in nutrition to help my patients? Maybe somebody isn't available to come to the conference those days. Okay. Where else should they
1: go? Okay, well, they should come to the conference. They should, whatever else they're doing, they should cancel it. There you go. And, and had come to the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. July 25th, 26th, 27th is the greatest thing. But um, apart from that... Um, If you go online to Nutrition CME, as in Continuing Medical Education, um, you'll have hours and hours of nutrition education that is totally free. Um, so I would encourage people to go there. They can also download the nutrition guide for clinicians. Mm. This is the it's now volume three that we have produced, totally free uh, on your iPhone or your Android. People should pick those things up. And looking at our our website pcrm.org, you'll find lots and lots and lots of information. I do hope that people won't be afraid to pick up some of my books, also, um, because everything that I think is important, I put in a book for people to read
0: we have quite a few sitting on the shelf up there <laughs> and not
1: just mine <laughs> uh, i mean there there are plenty of terrific books by dean ornish michael Greger, john mcdougall colin campbell caldwell esselstyn um joel Furman. so many people have really written wonderful things and i think they all deserve a look
0: you know it's funny those books man those are some powerful tools i was speaking with um i'll, I'll name drop here kevin eubanks the former band yeah. director for the tonight show you know he was yeah. with jay leno for all those years and uh, i was texting with him and he recently went Vegan a couple years ago Like Mm -hmm. really cool guy And I was like Why'd you do it? He said I read the China study Right and, you know, so how often do you hear that from somebody who's gone plant based? You know, it always starts with with that book, you know, yep, always. You bet. Uh, this is a question from a current medical student. She says she's in the midst of advocating for improved nutrition education at her med school, despite there being support for the importance of nutrition education. Um, she's having kind of a tough time. She wants to know. Um, Has there been any talk about a motivational interviewing technique or another approach that might help push things through in the medical curriculum as far as nutrition counseling?
1: Okay, great. Uh, First of all, I should say that we recognize that sometimes the medical school curriculum planners don't want to cancel other classes and have a whole bunch of new classes all about nutrition. So what we've done is we have actually created a slide set, um, several different slide sets. So let's say you're already learning about hypertension. Why not be able to present how foods will affect your blood pressure? So we have those PowerPoint slides already there that the professors just download, put them in their presentation. We also have them for obesity, for diabetes, for heart disease, so that it can be integrated into what they're already teaching. And you'll find that at pcrm.org. With regard to the models for how we talk to patients, uh, there are different models of uh, motivational interviewing and so forth. Um, I have been finding that more and more Patients don't need a lot of work on their motivation. It's not like we have to take months getting you ready uh, to do this. Patients say, look, I was ready last week. Just tell me what I'm going to do. I'm ready to jump in. So, yeah, there are some people who need a little bit of motivational interviewing. Most of them, they just need to be pushed in the swimming pool. So
0: let's flip the script a little bit, and let's talk about how patients then can talk to their doctors about this. Um, This was a really interesting question, and it kind of puts a new spin on this. As a matter of fact, Uh, this is uh, somebody named Leon. She writes and she says, how can I talk to doctors within my own family about the benefits of a plant-based diet? How should she start that conversation? Well,
1: it's hard to be a hero in your own home, I have to say. Um, so if it's, if it's somebody you're related to, they're always looking for some external validating source. Uh-huh. So you might give them a book or a DVD by someone else. Um, but... I, I think that there's no substitute for just solid information. Let's assume that people are interested and do want to learn, and we give them information in a form that they can tackle it. And you've heard my post-it trick, where you give people a book. Let's say the book is on why cheese is unhealthy. Um, you give them a book, but you don't just give them a book. You put a post-it note on page 143, and another one on page 157. And then you say to, the, to your loved one, I want to give you this book, but I really thought of you at a couple points in the book so instead of the book just sitting there unopened which is normally what happens when you give people a book they as soon as you're out of the room they tear it open and they're starting to read page 147 153 they want to figure out why you thought of them so i never give a book without um f- of highlighting a few pl- things that people have to read it's just a trick to make them open to their own thing and they will do it
0: uh, that is genius psychology i that would work for just about anybody i like that i'm going to try that with my wife um Another good question here. Uh, This is from somebody who uh, works in a practice. They want to know what would be the best way to initially bring up the idea of plant-based diets within their own staff, whether it be other doctors or nutritionists or registered dietitians how do they then, within their own practice, broach the idea?
1: Oh, great idea. Um, I think it's much the same thing as people do need information, and they need to see that it can work. Uh, Information can take two forms. One is, let me give you a 15 minute presentation on the new approach to diabetes or something like that. At the Barnard Medical Center, we do that every single week. Uh, One of the, um, either a trainee or one of our clinicians, will give a short presentation on something. It keeps us kind of alive and learning. And All medical practices can do that. But the other source of information is not just um, the latest facts about diabetes, but also the information we get through our tastes. So all cater lunch today. (laughs) (laughs) So when people have started to realize there are cool new products and new tastes, or when we're taking the staff out to lunch, you pick the place or pick the menu, then that breaks down those barriers bit by bit. Do you think that studies...
0: Uh, or um, case studies.
1: Of, uh, let me, yes. let me yeah. figure
0: out wh- which is, you know, going to open the eyes more. I would think for me personally, and I'm not a doctor, I would think, you know, something anecdotal like a case study would be more effective to get the eyes open a little bit at first. Because then you say, wow, this patient, this happened, that's pretty incredible. Then you dive into the more hardcore research. Which do you think yeah. is more eye-opening? Yeah,
1: I, I, I think that what you're saying is right. And we've, we've heard so often that a doctor was really reached by a patient who came in and had adopted um, the dietary guidelines that we have for diabetes or whatever, and the doctor was blown away and now prescribes it for all their other patients. We, see, we do see that a lot. Um, but there are other doctors who want to see a, um, randomized clinical trials or they want to see a meta-analysis or whatever. We got all that stuff, um, so we have them. Um, but yes, um, you can r- describe a case that you've seen and encourage people to other people to to try that approach.
0: Here's a big one. Uh, this this is a big one. This is um, a listener who writes: Why won't some insurance companies pay for nutrition counseling?
1: Yeah, luckily most of them do nowadays, and they really should. Um, and so for any patient who wants to see a dietitian, you should be able to see that and it should be covered by your insurance. It sometimes depends on diagnosis. So they might pay for it for if you have diabetes, but they may not pay for it in other conditions that I hope will change. Um, But also the message is here for medical clinics. Um, There's an endocrine clinic that I'm aware of where they've got so many people with type 2 diabetes, there's not a single dietitian on the whole staff. Um, and that wow. ought, that ought, that really ought to change. And for the practitioners, I want them to know that, that if you employ a registered dietitian, which I hope you do, um, they'll get paid. You'll get paid. You know, it's, it's not as if this is not val- volunteer activity for them, um, at least not for the most part. <laughs> so, um, so we have at the Barnard Medical Center, we have four registered dietitians who work with us. And it's it's great for the patients. Yeah. It's great for the caregivers because they know you've got the experts there. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's it's really hard for me to to fathom that there's a practice out there that doesn't have a dietitian a nutritionist, because then if you don't have that, you kind of run the risk of giving this vague prescription of diet and exercise to the patient. And I remember one time specifically when I was still overweight asking, you know, what diet should I go on and was just told flat out by a doctor just to eat more fruits and vegetables and less fast food. I was like. That's kind of vague, you know? It's like, I get where you're going, but can you give me an actual plan? They couldn't do it.
1: They yeah, or, or it. just eat right or or don't eat anything white. Maybe you've heard that. They're trying to say don't eat sugar and white flour and whatever. Right. But um, frankly, that's very anemic um, advice. Um, and so the way we do it is is completely different. We'll say... Um, if you've got diabetes or weight issues, we're going to take the animal products out of your diet. So here's what that means. And we're going to keep oils really low. And then how to pick the healthy choices from what's left. And then we also have particular ways that allow the patient to begin. Mm-hmm. So let's take the next seven days. Here's your assignment for the, for these seven days. Here's your assignment for the next couple weeks after that so you make it really practical give people a path to follow
0: you know i would also encourage people to take a look at the 21 day uh vegan kickstart app that we have that's another free one available in uh, oh, apple yes. and I, uh, uh, iphone and android devices absolutely it's magnificent recently overhauled too uh those recipes are are just top notch in english and spanish that's right um Here's kind of a wild card question, but I think it kind of ties together. Um, Somebody wants to know, uh, what's the best way to stop cravings for animal products and junk food? So they see this research. Maybe their doctor even broaches the idea of a plant-based diet being so beneficial. But how then do they stop the cravings for the foods they've been eating?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Um, First of all, let me say that I think a lot of people will imagine that food addictions only affect certain people. I think they affect almost everybody to one degree or another because, let's face it, foods are, are marketed in a way that they just are kind of can get you hooked. So let's say a person is hooked on cheese and meat and so forth. Um, several things. Number one, understand why you want to break free. So know the hazards of these things, the cholesterol, fat, and what it's doing to your body. So information number one. Number two, um, I think it's useful to take a break, uh, but focus on the short term. Don't say to yourself, for the rest of my life, I'm never going to have another, you know, fill in the blank. Right. Uh, that's too much of a burden. Instead, say, for this week, here's what, what I'm going to do. And I'll, I'll reevaluate after the week. Fine. No pressure. So you know if you don't like what you, w- the way you're going, you can, you can change course. What obviously happens, though, is after that week, a person feels more power. Uh, Where I think we run into trouble, though, is if we tease ourselves, I'll have it just a couple times a week. You're reigniting the the taste for those things, and you're never forgetting it. It's like a a smoker who just stops. That's way easier than Mm -hmm. a smoker who tries to cut down and have just a cigarette every couple of days. It it just reignites their craving.
0: That's such a big topic of debate. Do I I go all in overnight, or do I kind of taper off like – gradually get into the whole plant-based thing it's so funny like so so many people are scared just to dive right into the deep end they're afraid of what's going to happen right. they're afraid of letting go let me tell you a story before we wrap things up we, we have just about five more minutes here i remember before i had bariatric surgery and and this is the honest to god's truth you have to go to a support group and when you, you're dealing with patients who are, in my case, 420 pounds, but there were people who are 500 and 600 pounds in the same group, we were all in a really bad way. After the surgery, they were so afraid of giving up their, their favorite foods, the foods that they've been eating, they had talked. They asked the doctor flat out. It was like, can I still take a bite of this, chew it up, and then spit it out? That's a serious thing. Yes, that's food addiction.
1: Uh, it is, and it's very widespread. And and the the best answer to it is to to really realize that we may love these foods, they don't love us back mm-hmm. at all, um, and we are prone to them in the same way as a person can be prone to any kind of addiction. And and people who deal with addictions will say, y- where you're going to be weakest is when you're hungry, or if you're angry, or you're lonely. Um, th- th- these kinds of things um, will cause people to really want... Or, or also if you're tired. You didn't sleep last night. So, well, I'll just eat anything to get through the day. Um, that's not just true for cigarettes and alcohol and drugs. That's also true for food. And if we remember those things, we'll keep ourselves less vulnerable. Now, you said, can a person cut down? Sure they can. And if they cut down, that's good. That, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But at some point along the line, do a clean break, even if it's for a short period, like three weeks. Mm-hmm. Because... That allows your taste buds to forget, mm-hmm. and if you have chocolate, if you haven't had chocolate in two months, it's not necessarily calling your name today. If you had it yesterday at about this time, it it, it, it has caused <laughs> you to want it. It it's <laughs> turns that little little alarm on that, that comes on every day. So if you can break f- free for a short period of time, it gives you power.
0: Uh, This is a a serious question Kind of unrelated But I think it's It's a really important one Uh, This is from somebody uh, Who is watching right now Um, She's uh, saying that her mom Is extremely overweight And then gets extremely angry When she tries to broach The subject of that With her mom What does she do? She says I love her I'm only 21 I don't want to lose her
1: Well I think those words Are the most important um, Because if it's if you're trying to do an intervention by capturing her and throwing out all the bad foods, then you're setting up a power struggle. Um, she's a free agent. She can do whatever she wants, and that's her right, including hurting herself and including even killing herself. That's, that's her right. as, as a, you know, She can do that. But um, to say to your mom, I love you so much, what can I do to, to support you in this? And obviously, you have to be a good role model yourself. Bring healthy foods along. Make sure you, that everything you do, you do it with love. And um, I don't mean that in a in a funny way or hippie way. I just mean that's got to come come through because she's defensive and she's a little ashamed and she feels guilty about things. And so you've got to just sidestep that. But I'll tell you one of the funnier ones. Uh, Benjamin Spock, the famous pediatrician mm-hmm. um, who wrote Baby and Child Care. It was the biggest selling book of all time other than the Bible. Um, huge, huge book, Baby and Child Care. Um, he had... In the, he wrote the seventh edition of this book, and he said, I'm sorry, everybody, I was wrong. I wrote that, that, uh, that you need to give meat and dairy to your kids. Man, was I wrong. When the kids are raised on vegan diets, they're healthier than everybody. And He had adopted a vegan diet himself, but he did it for health reasons, because his health was bad. His wife, Mary, would once in a while see a little cheese in the refrigerator, and she would say, Ben... You know, what's the deal with this? Uh, And and he would say, oh, I just bought it at the store. I just couldn't resist. You know, it just smelled so good. I got some. She said, well, Ben, I think I'm just going to throw that away. And she would put it to him in such a loving way. Because, Ben, I just love you so much. And he he would come to the refrigerator one day and say, Mary... What happened to that cheese that I bought? She said, <laughs> Ben, I just love you too much. I just threw it away. So the point is you don't get into a power struggle with somebody who who, who, who doesn't want to get into one. What you do instead is you say – you share information, you share it lovingly, and they'll come around in their own time.
0: And, and let me speak to this from experience, being on the side of her mother, being that former overweight guy. When I was at my heaviest, I had a group of friends – try to organize an intervention from me, and I felt like I was under attack, and I excommunicated them for about two years, just cut them out of my life. It completely backfired. If they were to have taken the approach that you talked about, to come in with, you know, love and compassion and just tell them straight up, like, you know, we love you, Chuck. We're worried about you. Here's some information.
1: And do it one at a time. You know, you don't have to to – Every single, right. every single person who's got a food issue, which is most everybody, right. um, even, I mean, even people who are, who are at a fairly healthy weight, right. they all think, I could do better. Everyone has guilt and shame about these things. And the idea is not to make that worse. Um, we're all in this together. Okay. You know, nobody is following an absolutely perfect diet. So the idea is let's figure out how we can do better. Let's share healthy recipes, healthy programs, healthy books, whatever it is. Have some fun with it. Um, I think that's the way to get it done. Yeah,
0: and and the person will be receptive. Whether or not you realize it or not at the time, you may have a little bit of a dust up right there, may ruffle a little bit of feathers. But as soon as there's some separation between the two of you, you're going to step back, that person is, and they're going to think. They're going to have time to process what just happened. And that's when the change occurs. But if you keep beating them over the head and they feel like they're under attack, that's when things can kind of go awry. So I like your advice a lot.
1: You can also do it together. You could say, okay – Let's say it's parents, they got one kid who's really the heavy kid. You don't say, you have to do this. What you do is you say, we, how about if we do an experiment as a family? Mm -hmm. Let's do vegan for the next three weeks. Who's in? And we're all in, so we're going to do it together. So you don't point a finger.
0: Uh, Real quick before we get out of here, we should also mention that here at the Barnard Medical Center, we have patient classes as well so that we can, our experts, our doctors, our nutritionists can help disseminate a lot of this information pass that on to people as well
1: the patients they will see the doctor or see the nurse practitioner uh they can then see the registered dietitian the the, diet they then they can get referred to the classes which they can attend for free Mm. forever um it's allowed so many people to really change their lives
0: it's it's phenomenal and again uh Please, the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, July 26th and 27th, the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. Register right now, pcrm.org slash ICNM. We're going to be doing the show live from out there. Maybe Great. we can do another Facebook Live. I know you're going to be ultra busy those few days, but maybe you can carve out a half hour and come back. I'm in. All right. Thank you, Chuck. It strikes me just how much of a domino effect the curriculum in medical school is having. Students aren't taught about nutrition and then they become doctors and can't talk to their patients about something they don't know anything about. And then the patient continues down an unhealthy path and will blindly try to find their way to a healthy diet. But what if the reverse was true? What if students were taught about nutrition and then they were able to talk to their patients about the link between diet and disease and then that patient is able to reverse diabetes and heart disease and get off many medications and ultimately lead a healthier and happier life? That, my friend, is what we're going for here. And I think that that's also a vision of maybe why you're listening today. Because it's important that we all learn how our food choices directly impact how we feel, how we feel emotionally, how we feel physically, every way imaginable. And oh, by the way, can help us live longer as well. So ICNM Calling all doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, nurses, we want for you to join us July 26th and 27th in Washington, D.C., not too very far from these here studios. Want you to join us at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, guaranteed to be the most inspiring, most impactful, most insightful two days that you can imagine where you will learn about the latest research and how you can implement that, put that into your practice and yes, yes, my friend, the food is amazing. Register now, pcrm.org ICNM. And if you want to continue today's conversation, take a moment, follow us on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. At Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's. The WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. The Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and then spelled out on Instagram at Physicians Committee. Dr. Barnard, he is a Twitter exclusive. He's at Dr. Neil Barnard. He is not on Instagram. So if you go on there and you try to follow somebody who proclaims themselves to be Dr. Barnard, that is an imposter. Uh, Social media, also a great place for you to share your ideas for future shows. You all have so many great ideas, as a matter of fact. Got some suggestions this past week. They continue to come in. And actually, very excited to announce that we've recently taped the show that we get the most requests for. And that would be the hormonal changes that happen in women. You know it better as menopause. Had Dr. Neil Barnard, as a matter of fact, sit across the table for me not too terribly long ago. We recorded that segment. We're going to add a little bit of polish, and I promise you it is coming very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. Very interesting, by the way, about the role of hormones in all of this and how food drives the hormonal changes in us in a lot of ways. And before we go, before we go, we need your help. This is a special call to listeners in Oregon. If you are in Oregon, listen up, please. Three cheers to the Oregon House of Representatives for passing a bill that will guarantee hospital patients receive a healthy plant-based option at every single meal. And the same principle also applies to prisons. So we've cleared one hurdle in the legislative process. And now the bill is going on to the Senate for a vote. And that is where you can help. We need for you to get in touch with your senator to help push this thing through. And we've made it really easy for you. Head over to pcrm.org Oregon. Right there, you can send an email to your senator telling them, please vote yes on that bill. And think about why that is important for a second. Think about the fact that so many people go into the hospital for problems that are largely preventable. Problems that eating a plant-based diet can dramatically reduce the risk of even happening. We've talked about it. Heart disease, diabetes, the complications that come with that, cancer, so many preventable deaths. And it begins with what's on your plate. So this bill in Oregon would require hospitals to give a plant-based option to patients at every meal. Critically important. PCRM.org slash Oregon is the place to go to contact your senator. Tell them to vote yes on that bill. And you know how we were talking also during the show about how much money could be saved in health care costs if doctors were armed with more information about plant-based diets? Check this out. The savings, they don't stop there. The St. Joseph Health System in Sonoma County, California Beautiful area, by the way. St. Joseph Health System reports vegetarian entrees cost about 50% less than meat entrees. Half. They cost half. And the hospital then projects saving at least $5,000 a year by serving more meat-free meals. And then guess what? That $5,000 that's saved, those savings may, in fact, be passed down to Y-O-U bringing down the cost of healthcare. So Oregon residents, we need for you to step up. Contact your senator now pcrm.org/oregon and we thank you in advance. Last thing before we go, if you have not already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room podcast by the Physicians Committee. It is absolutely free every single week. This week, two episodes, doubling up. Very cool stuff. Head over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Shoutcast, wherever podcasts are found. That is where you can find us. Go ahead and subscribe if you would be so kind and leave a five star rating. We appreciate it. And that's going to do it for us this week. Busy week, very important show. I feel like we covered a lot. I feel like we absolutely covered a lot. So. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.